It was a dark and stormy night in Santa Ana, California. No, really, by the time I arrived at the Frida Cinema on the night of October 15th, what started as a drizzle had become a full-on cats and dogs shower with thunder and lightning. Which was alright with me, because warm weather in October bums me out. We shouldn't be sweating during this time of year, we should be in sweaters, and besides, rain is horror-friendly weather. I carefully walked down the soaked sidewalk to join the small crowd of fellow VIP ticket holders for tonight's event, Camp Frida 6 Holiday Horrors All-Night Horror Movie Marathon, with films that took place on or around days of leisure and or celebration. In exchange for paying a little extra for our VIP tickets, we were allowed early entry, giving us ample opportunity to find and claim a seat, and more time to get to know our fellow attendees. Or, if you're an antisocial loner with a podcast, it allows you time to mill about the theater, silently judging everybody else for not being as big a loser as you. At the check-in table, we had our tickets scanned, and we were given a wristband to identify us as VIPs, and those who intended to drink alcohol during the night were given a second wristband. We were then given a Camp Frida t-shirt, along with a goodie bag filled with the goodies. Mine had some candy, a couple stickers, and a couple of pins, one of which was a glow-in-the-dark Camp Frida logo. There was also a blank Christmas ornament inside, which one could decorate at the table containing markers, stickers, and strings. The Frida is a two-screen theater, and the tradition during Camp Frida is to show different films in each of them, allowing attendees to choose their own movie-watching adventure throughout the night. The screens are each given a name that goes with the whole summer camp motif, and so for that night, screens one and two became the Fire Lodge and Mess Hall. We were directed to the Fire Lodge, where the stage had been decorated with cobwebs, balloons, and jack-o'-lanterns, while music by Goblin, John Carpenter, and Jerry Goldsmith, among others, played on the sound system. A volunteer went around offering to tape off seats in the mess hall for us. That way, should we decide to watch a movie over there, we'd already have a reserved spot. I wanted to hug this volunteer, but I figured if I was going to hug anybody, it was going to be the pretty blonde volunteer who was done up like Florence Pugh's May Queen from Midsommar, minus all those flowers. Alas, I never did work up the courage to step up and spit mad hugging game to her, not because I was afraid of being turned down, but because I was afraid of her saying yes. And next thing you know, I'm wearing a bearskin and all that that entails. Sometime after that, we were joined by the rest of the attendees, including a large group of friends with at least two married couples in the rotation. They were all very chipper, and I sensed that they were long-time pals, and it was nice to see that there were a couple of single men among them, because that meant that the wives in the group didn't force their husbands to only fraternize with other married friends. But upon seeing the two single men in the group turn to give each other an intimate smooch, I realized, nope, they're all married. One of the straight husbands excused himself, and his wife looked over to the others as he walked away and casually declared, he has a very small bladder, to which another wife responded with, Oh, really? I have the best bladder in the world. And I almost piped in with, for a woman, maybe. But I didn't want to ruin their fun, because I actually enjoyed watching them. It reminded me of my younger days, when I was the third wheel to my married friends, interrupting them every time they were about to kiss. There was an intro by the Frida's projectionist, whose name I didn't get, I'm sorry to say, but I believe it was Don, but don't hold me to that. And he brought down the Frida Cinema's founder, Logan Crow, the director of programming Trevor Dillon, and various volunteers, giving each of them their time to shine as we applauded them all. Then he handed the mics over to the two ladies who would be our camp counselors for the evening, Becca and Issa, who are the social media director and volunteer coordinator for the Frida. They broke down the details of the evening, in regards to the schedule and the breaks between films, as well as a polite request for us to be considerate with our trash. 
Then it was on to the marathon proper, which started off a little too scary for us as the first film appeared very yellow on screen, forcing the projectionist to stop the movie and fix the situation. One quick bathroom break later, and all was well again, and from that point forward, it was smooth sailing all night. Now you kids might want to sit up close and listen to this old head tell you about a period in the late 90s when Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson brought back the teen slasher with their surprise hit, Scream. Hollywood wanted in on that sweet, sweet money, so along came a bunch of horror films starring a bunch of pretty faces, rather than the more relatable, attainable types that starred in these kinds of movies back in the 80s. Among these cash-ins was the 1997 slasher I Know What You Did Last Summer, directed by Jim Gillespie and also written by Kevin Williamson, who adapted the novel by Lois Duncan. This was the first film of the evening, which takes place in a seaside North Carolina town, where we're introduced to four friends celebrating the 4th of July, all of them recent high school grads with plans for the future. By the way, for any designated drivers who are listening to this, tie up your drunks. Tie them up or knock them out. Because there's still the possibility that one of these intoxicated assholes is going to do something that will take your attention off the road for one second, and that's all the time needed for some sad-ass fisherman to stumble onto your speeding vehicle's path. <coughs> that's what happens to our quartet and rather than do the hard but correct thing in calling the cops they instead dump the body in the ocean swearing to take this secret to their graves a year later one of them julie played by jennifer love hewitt comes home from college and it's clear that the weight of that man's death weighs heavily on her soul as it does on the souls of her ex-boyfriend ray played by freddie prince jr and her friend helen sarah michelle geller as for the fourth of their guilty party, Barry, played by Ryan Phillippe, he's an overly pumped-up, rage-filled jock, and therefore has no soul. So he just continues to be his usual aggro self, and all of us in the audience found his very extra behavior very entertaining to watch. Soon, our group begins to receive anonymous notes, with the title of the film written on them, which brings out major scared and paranoid vibes in the entire gang. They want to know who is the I in question. Is it the goofy-ass nerd from The Big Bang Theory? Or maybe it's creepy-ass Anne Heche? There's also a strong possibility that it's one of them. But my money is on the scary hook-wielding figure in a rain slicker, and I have to give this dude some serious props for his excellent handwriting and his top-notch hook skills. He probably uses the same hand for both. The audience seemed to appreciate Julie's use of a very 90s internet to search for clues, as well as her very 90s hair bangs, while I got a kick out of the killer's very supernatural ability to show up and disappear anywhere, as well as his ability to transport dead bodies in record time, in broad daylight no less. My apologies for what might have come off as an insensitive comment regarding Anne Heche's character, and to be real with you, due to her recent passing, her tragic and unsettling role carried with it a tragic and unsettling air that obviously wasn't there in my previous viewing. But rather than dwell on that sad truth, I will dwell on a possibly sadder one. This viewing took me back to when my friends and I saw this at the cinema back in 97. We had a good time and then went to grab a bite at In-N-Out Burger, where we had a serious discussion about which of the actresses in the film we'd most want to bang. One friend was all about Hewitt, having been into her since Party of Five, while my other friend was a big Buffy fan, and so that's where his penile loyalties lay. As for me, I was the outlier who preferred the actress who played Helen's sister, Elsa, Bridget Wilson, because it was my understanding that That Veronica Vaughn is one piece of ace. And on top of that, her character wore glasses. And as some of you might already know, the only thing hotter to me than one pair of tits is two pairs of eyes. Of course, each of us would then accuse each other of lying about wanting to fuck any of the ladies, because clearly he was gay. Except we used a different word, because the 90s were a more innocent time for hate speech. 
an even sadder postscript to that anecdote. Ten years later, I met up with one of those high school friends. It had been a while, so we caught up, we reminisced about the old days, then we went to go see Transformers. At the end of the night, as I drove him back home, he tried to get nostalgic by making those humorous assumptions about my sexuality again. As per usual, I told him, Yeah, sure, I'm totally gay, and you're all I want, you big hunk you. Except this time, he kept going. And so again, I jokingly said yes. But he would continue. And eventually, it got very uncomfortable because it didn't sound like he was joking anymore. It sounded like he was seriously trying to get me to admit that I was gay. So I seriously answered him no. But that wasn't enough. He still wouldn't let up. This went on for way longer than it should have gone. I told him this wasn't funny anymore. And frankly, it was getting annoying. And so he asked again. I had enough. I slammed hard on the brakes and pulled the car off to the side, nearly colliding with a parked PT cruiser. It got real quiet, and you could smell burnt rubber in the air. I looked over at my friend and saw fear in his eyes as I began to roll up my sleeves. Then I reached over, angrily unzipped this fly, furiously pulled out his cock, and violently sucked him off. After we both finished, I wiped my mouth and told him, Listen, you son of a bitch, a gay man wouldn't have given you such a bad blowjob, and a straight man wouldn't have stayed hard, let alone gotten hard in the first place. That shut him up. Then I took him home, wished him well, and dropped him off. I never heard from him again, although I did get an anonymous text the following year that read, I know what you did last summer, but I ignored it. Anyway, it held up for me. The movie, I mean. It's a solid slasher, and it's a lot more beautifully shot than I remembered, so props to cinematographer Dennis Crossan. This is definitely from a time when movies used to look like movies. I enjoyed it just as much as I did the last time, even if the scares weren't as strong the second time around. But it was fun to watch others jump up and scream every once in a while. It also warmed my heart to hear the entire audience burst into a rapturous cacophony of applause, cheers, and laughs after Hewitt delivered quite possibly the most iconic line of dialogue in her entire career. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? That's not the only moment where the audience reacted as such. During the intro, we were asked to cheer any time the holiday of the film was said out loud. In this film's case, we cheered every time someone mentioned the 4th of July. But what I thought to be the worst part of the movie back then remains the worst part today. There's a scene where Helen comes back home after a long day, and she goes into the kitchen to grab a soda. And it's so awkward and unnatural the way she stands over her kitchen table, pouring her drink in a glass in the most assholish way, with the glass standing straight up so that she gets 90% foam and 10% soda, then takes a couple sips from her glass in a manner more befitting someone with a gun to her back. Then she takes off for her bedroom, with both the half-full can and the half-empty glass still on the table. I guess she figured the killer who just crept into her house might be thirsty as well. So the boy and girl are making out, right? When they hear over the radio that this lunatic killer's escaped from an insane asylum. That's not the way it goes. The boy goes for help, and the girl stays in the car, and she hears this, like, scratching sound. No, he's been decapitated. No, he was gutted with a hook. I think he's dead. We can't just leave him here. Oh, tell me, little Miss Prelaw, what's the charge for manslaughter? We make a pact. Right here and now we take the sorry grave. For the last year, four friends have kept a secret. Are you on drugs? No. Well, then what is wrong? I've had a rough year. But not all secrets stay buried. Somebody sent this to me. Oh, my God. 
Someone knows. I know what you did last summer. Ooh. What they thought would be a new beginning. Toast to us. Is becoming a dead end. Somebody tried to kill you last night. We have to go to the police. If you wanted me dead, he could have done it. And the mistake they made. It was an accident. There was no accident. It was murder. What if he's still alive? Hey! What are you doing here? Is coming back to haunt them. Oh, my gosh. He's after me, too. I got a letter. I got run over. Helen gets her hair chopped off. Ah! Julie gets a body in a trunk, and you get a letter? That's balanced. She's waiting for us to unravel. The wait is over. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? Hello? summer after a break we returned to the fire lodge where the hosts announced that both theaters were now opened then they invited on stage mikey aguirre the gentleman behind see it on 16 millimeter normally he tours the various cinemas to screen films on 16 millimeter but that night he was there to pitch his selection to us the 1989 spring break slash easter slasher nightmare beach which would play over at the mess hall the host then told us that those of us who were going to see Aguirre's choice would also have the bonus of participating in an Easter egg hunt before the film, where we could find eggs containing movie passes and various other goodies. The host then tried something new for Camp Frida. A wheel appeared on screen, divided into sections, and each section representing a different film. The wheel was spun, and whichever film the arrow settled on would be the one that would play right there in the fire lodge. Among the films were New Year's Eve, the 2006 remake of Black Christmas, and 1995's Day of the Beast, which is also a Christmas film. Unfortunately, it landed on 2001's Valentine, which I saw back then and never wanted to see again. So it was an easy choice for me, and apparently most of the audience, as many of us, ventured next door. I was so busy settling into my new seat that I forgot about the Easter egg hunt until an overzealous gentleman swooped over to my lonely section and grabbed all the eggs surrounding my oblivious ass, and all I could do was laugh. Nightmare Beach starts off in true 1980s spring break style, with a serial killer being executed by electric chair. Diablo is his was his name, and he was the leader of a particularly crime-happy biker gang, but he continued to swear his innocence in the murders almost up until the moment of his execution, where he then swore that he would return to exact his revenge. One crispy convict later, we're treated to a credit-sequence montage of college beach bodies having fun up and down the Florida burg of Manatee Beach, before settling in to introduce the various potential victims and killers. Our main doofus is Skip, a college football player who recently fucked it up for his team during the Orange Bowl and is understandably forlorn about it, despite attempts by his horndog teammate Ronnie to cheer him up by reminding him that they are indeed there for spring break and all which that entails. While Ronnie employs the ask a hundred women to sleep with you and one will say yes technique of scoring, Skip prefers the company of Gail, a local bartender who is almost as much an Eeyore as Skip is, but she has a much better reason for her Down syndrome. You see, Gail's sister was one of Diablo's victims, and she was there for his execution, so there's both fear and uncertainty over what she witnessed and what she was told. Feelings that grow even stronger once it's revealed that Diablo's body has disappeared from its grave. Perhaps not too coincidentally, 
a mysterious leather-clad biker, his identity hidden by helmet, is driving around town in his souped-up motorcycle, complete with electrified passenger seat for unlucky hitchhikers. But since hitchhiking was becoming less of a thing by 1989, he supplements his murder cycle by going on foot, killing people by electrocuting them or burning them with exposed live wires or big furnaces that shoot out flames at lengths that defy logic. But you know how it is with these Italian filmmakers. Logic has about as much place in a horror movie as a Negro in their sister's bedroom. Oh yeah, about the filmmakers. During his intro, Aguirre credited the direction of this Itai production to Umberto Lenzi, who among various Gialli and Eurocrime films is probably most infamously known for the grindhouse fave Cannibal Ferox, aka the one where a chick gets hooks through her breasts. But Lenzi claimed to have quit the production before shooting began only sticking around at the request of replacement director James Justice, in a position that I can only speculate as being the Obi-Wan to Justice's Luke Skywalker. Either way, this ultra-goofy, terribly acted movie was so much fun to watch with the crowd. When not being entertained watching the killer turn people into crispy critters, we were equally entertained by the scenes featuring the most Floridian of men and women. There is so much woo going on, most of it coming from this random dude who keeps popping up to scream, He always popped up when you least expected it, and it never failed to make many of us in the audience crack up. There are also plenty of scenes involving wet t-shirts and oiled up bodies, and it's all equal opportunity as we watch both sexes get reduced to eye candy, because that's the America that I believe in. Speaking of America, this movie features quite possibly the most realistic cinematic portrayal of high-ranking officials and civil servants at any level that I've seen. They are all so incompetent and self-serving. As the body count rises, the mayor and the chief of police decide to cover it up by burying the bodies in a salt mine, and they have a doctor to help them falsify the records. The mayor doesn't want to look bad, and the chief is just a power-tripping asshole, and it's heavily implied that the doctor uses Bill Cosby tactics to satisfy his Kevin Spacey tastes. I'd hate on the chief and the doctor, except they're played by John Saxon and Michael Parks, and they were never not awesome, regardless of who they played. And while you never see Parks do any of the abhorrent things he's accused of, you do see him hilariously pull out a flask every single time he gets or gives bad news, and the audience always cheered whenever that flask came out. Also included in this assortment of assholes is a pervy hotel manager who goes into a supply closet that also happens to have a hole drilled into it, allowing him to spy on a hooker in the next room who has a great racket going. She hooks her johns by giving them a sob story about being a student short of cash. I think this is a very smart ploy because it allows dudes who are too proud to pay for it to sleep with a woman who is totally out of their league. As far as they're concerned, this hot chick was totally into them. And so, sure, here's a couple hundred bucks to help her with that other thing. There's also a prankster who, among his hilarious pranks, goes around pretending to be a shark on the beach, freaking everybody out. Man, oh man, do I fucking hate pranksters. Do you want to know why? Because these motherfuck... You know what? For your ear's sake, and for the sake of my high blood pressure, I'm going to move on. Suffice it to say, motherfuck a prankster. One week of non-stop partying guarantees to blow away so many brain cells you won't even remember your name. Oh, wow! Every one of these years, by sunrise, Easter morning, I'm telling the whole school you're a bender. Welcome to spring break, the annual migration of the idiot.
biker parking only. Get a grip. Chill. Look, we don't want any trouble, all right? Edward Diablo Santor, the state stands ready to execute you as charged. Do you have any last words? May the Lord have mercy on you. Drunk breakers. I guess it's a fun trick. Sick Diablo's biker buddies. He vowed he was coming back. an officer with a deadly weapon. That's cause to blow your fucking pretty head off. Who killed my friend? Who? After the break, we all returned to the fire lodge, where someone came out to give us the bad news. It was last call for alcohol. And the good news, they would be serving pizza after the film. Then the host returned to announce the next film playing in that theater, the first of the two Jamie Lee Curtis movies that took place on a train during New Year's Eve, Terror Train. Then they spun the wheel to reveal the alternate feature, the 2009 zombie flick, Dead Snow. Having already watched Terror Train during the Camp Frida live stream back in 2020, I decided to go with the other film, which I had never seen. So off I went, back to the mess hall, with my large cup of cherry coke that I didn't finish during Nightmare Beach. Easter is this Norwegian film's holiday, and so we watch how kids over there do spring break, somewhere in some snowy hinterland, up in some mountain cabin. So we're not going to see a bunch of exposed skin, which is for the best because we're not talking about beach bods for most of this crew, but I get it. In the cold, you're going to want some extra layers of warmth. So anyway, we've got seven of them, four dudes and three chicks. And you'd think the tubby movie geek of this funky bunch would be the odd man out. Wrong. He actually ends up being the first, the only one, to score with a rather attractive woman, despite there being nothing particularly alluring about him, visually or personality-wise. Again, let me remind you, he's a movie geek. And as you, me, and the rest of the movie geeks know, movie geeks are the absolute fucking worst. That's why we have to find another movie geek if we want to fuck. And that just makes two of the fucking worst, who are also the worst at fucking, getting together to fuck. And if two of the fucking worst, who are the fucking worst at fucking, end up fucking, that means some of the fucking worst end up having fucking kids. And their kids are the fucking worst. They usually grow up to be pranksters. 
So back to this fat fuck and his hot chick. He leaves the cabin to go take a shit in the outhouse, and after dropping a deuce and wiping his ass, this lady just steps right into the outhouse with him. And it's like, if being in a small space that reeks of shit isn't going to cool her jets, then I suppose she'd be turned on by the piece of shit sitting before her. He doesn't even have to make the first move. Instead, she picks up his hand, the same hand he used to wipe his shitty Norwegian ass with, and begins to suck his fingers. Lady and gentlemen, it was at this point that the jaded black-hearted cynic who watched real death videos and who found a Serbian film kinda dull, this garbage human whose words you are listening to, began to feel something approaching the temptation to faint. But instead, I took a deep breath, picked up my cup of cherry coke, and I sucked on the straw as if it were my old friend's cock strengthening my resolve. My eyes rolled back down from my head, and I was able to continue watching as this poor, damaged woman rode this chunky cowboy into an orgasmic state of fecal-scented bliss. It was here that I felt that I was truly watching a horror film. And so I was relieved when the zombies finally arrived. And who are these zombies? Nazis. You see, back during World War II, a bunch of these SS scumbags had occupied a part of Norway, and they did their thing, raping, pillaging, murdering the villagers, because, you know, that's what one does for their country. But eventually, the villagers fought back and killed most of them. But some of them froze to death. Well, here they are, back from the dead, and ready to rike and roll. The survivors are left to fend these zombies off, using their wits and what little weaponry they have at their disposal. I enjoyed this absurd splatter flick featuring creative kills, and it's filled with blood, entrails, severed body parts, and various viscera, even though this is definitely more of a, of a movie geek joint that takes stuff from fondly remembered genre films and gives them its own spin. It's less about reinventing the wheel and more about redecorating it. The movie openly references its cinematic inspirations, particularly the works of Sam Raimi, specifically Evil Dead 2. And so it has that same kind of horror comedy blend, albeit a much darker form of comedy. I also appreciated some of the nasty turns and surprises it takes along the way, and it plays no favorites when it comes to its characters, regardless of what you'd expect based on their types. This was directed by Tommy Wercola, who also co-wrote the screenplay. And he went on to direct Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, which I'm now interested in checking out because I'd like to see what he turned out on a big Hollywood scale. But I'm also left thinking that if this guy, an obvious movie geek himself, intended on painting such an unflattering portrait of one as he did in this film, or was this in fact some kind of wish fulfillment? Like, I can imagine some super nerd who jizzes over movies and comic book properties and movies about comic book properties, working up the kind of fear and resentment towards the opposite sex, and so that ends up mixing in with his passion to just be able to, you know, actually kiss a girl. And the larger that fear and resentment grows, the more toxic that mix becomes, until eventually that nerd goes from thinking, man, I wish a nice girl would let me take her out for a chocolate malt, to, man, that sexy slut should hunger for my four inches so bad she's willing to smell my shit to get it. Det var en holdeplass for tyske krigsskikk. 
Folk blir torturert og banket og mishandlet hver eneste dag. Tror man jeg sier det. Dette var onde satans jævla. Sjekk her da. Fortune and glory, kid. It was during the following break that the pizza arrived, and me, being overly assumptive, assumed it was as complimentary as the coffee for the VIPs. Two slices and seven dollars later, I returned to the Fire Lodge, where trailers for holiday-themed films played in the background, including Thanksgiving, Bloody New Year, Gremlins, Eyes Wide Shut, Jack Frost, and Uncle Sam. Then the host returned to announce the next film playing in the Fire Lodge, the 1987 Thanksgiving body counter Blood Rage, which was introduced by a gentleman whose name I can't recall, but he's from the website Horror Buzz. He talked about how this movie was a favorite with everyone from Horror Buzz and that they screened it twice for their horror movie nights at the Frida. He talked about what a wild film it was, and I agree, as it's an annual viewing for me every November. But as much as I would have loved to experience a nutty flick like Blood Rage with a rowdy, sleep-deprived crowd, I made the difficult decision to instead go with the wheels choice for the mess hall, 1986's April Fool's Day, a film I always meant to watch. So off I went, but not before stopping for a cup of my free VIP coffee, of which I took two sips before tossing it in the trash where it belonged. Then I silently wept for those who had to pay for that disgusting brew. Only a handful of people chose to watch this film, and the projectionist stuck his head out from the booth to thank us for giving this movie a chance, because he felt it was a pretty good movie worth a watch. He also warned us that the movie would begin in a strange aspect ratio, but not to worry. That's intentional on the film's part. Then someone in the crowd douchily ordered the projectionist to roll film, and the projectionist mumble responded some appropriately snarky comment about how he was going to get the film print ready, as if this entire evening slate wasn't being presented digitally. So yeah, the film opens with a narrower aspect ratio because we're watching footage from someone's video camera, introducing our cast of college cut-ups as they travel by ferry to visit their friend Muffy at her island residence for the weekend during spring break. The most recognizable from the group is Kit, played by Amy Steele, who is best known as Final Girl Ginny from Friday the 13th Part 2, and Arch, played by Thomas F. Wilson, who is best known as one of cinema's greatest bullies, Biff Tannen from the Back to the Future trilogy. As for Muffy, she's played by the Valley Girl herself, Deborah Foreman, who gives a very interesting performance as someone who comes off both very friendly while also vaguely creepy. It's like she's not quite all there, 
Despite her sweet face and lovely smile, there's something possibly sinister brewing underneath. And that's when the film connected the dots for me. That's when it's shown that she is setting up various pranks all throughout her property. I knew it. A prankster. And on the weekend of April Fool's Day, no less. Oh, she's having herself a blast messing with her guests, placing whoopee cushions on the chairs, setting the same chairs to fall apart. She's screwing with the light switches. She's jacking up the water faucets. And worst of all, she serves them franks and beans for dinner. Not that I dislike franks and beans, but come on, that house screams Chateaubriand, man. You got to class up the cuisine for your guests. On the other hand, they deserve it. They're really just a bunch of assholes when you get right down to it. The best kind of privileged white people that Reagan's America had to offer. All they do is goof around, make gay jokes, work out, kick soccer balls, try to fuck each other, and wear sunglasses because their future is so bright. And so I couldn't get too upset once they start disappearing, only to reappear at room temperature in various states of dead. So it leaves a viewer wondering if this is all Muffy's doing as well. Because as mentioned before, she carries a faint air of psycho killer. And the opening credits even show us a flashback of Muffy's childhood, where she receives a jack-in-the-box, but a scary monster doll pops out instead. You hear her scream, and it's the kind of prank that might seem minor in retrospect, but come on, man. The only thing kids have in common is that they're all little shits. Otherwise, they're all very unique and different in every way. And so some kids, they handle the scary stuff better than others. And so while some might give a quick shout and move on, and some might go crying for their mommies, Others end up becoming psycho-freaky Jasons. You just never know. It's like this one time that I saw my friend put on a monster mask and hide behind a couch as his two-year-old toddler came stumbling into the living room. His mother and I protested against this, but he was dead set on having his fun. And so out he popped going, rah, at his baby boy, who then gave out the most ear-piercing scream. He dropped to his knees, and I'm sure tears weren't the only liquid he excreted at that moment. His mother then started yelling at my friend, practically beating on him, while their son was on his back crying for some kind of comfort. I immediately bid farewell and walked home, choking back the lump that was growing in my throat, wiping away the pesky moisture forming in my eyes, because that's the kind of pussy I am. The last time I saw that child, he was a preteen, and uh, he was wearing a shirt featuring a drawing of a farting dog with the words, blame the dog under it. But I couldn't tell you if that was a sign of trauma or not. But his mother is no longer in the picture. And the father is a big Trump supporter. So clearly there was some damage done. Anyway, I think the important lesson to be learned here is don't get a girl pregnant at 15 years old. While this is lumped in with other slashes of the era, April Fool's Day is more in the spirit of an Agatha Christie mystery. We watch these characters hang out, and on occasion, a body will pop up. And on the rare occasion that we are shown a victim's final moments, the film cuts away before things get bloody. The violence is pretty tame, and the film's R rating is more about the language and sexual situations. Because of that, I can easily recommend this to people who otherwise stay away from these kinds of movies. I can also easily recommend this movie to people in general, because I felt this was a pretty good mystery that featured well-executed scenes of suspense, which shouldn't surprise me, considering this is from Fred Walton, the director of the original When a Stranger Calls. But despite these guys not really being my kind of guys, I actually enjoyed watching them. Some of it feels improvised rather than scripted, and it all feels natural. I not only believe that these characters were friends, but it wouldn't surprise me if the actors themselves already were friends or became friends during the shoot. Even though this movie is over 30 years old and is probably best known for its ending, I'm still going to keep mum on the conclusion, for the sake of anybody out there who hasn't seen it. But I really like the bold choice that this film made, and I can imagine many who saw this back in the day found this to be a breath of fresh air. But I can also imagine many others being pissed off by it. But its greatest accomplishment is that it's a film featuring people playing pranks on each other, and somehow, I was smiling at the end of it. 
because I fucking hate pranksters. I'm sorry. I held back while talking about Nightmare Beach, but forget it. I'm going both barrels right here right now. You want to know why I fucking hate pranksters? In my experience, pranksters love to prank, but they absolutely hate it when they get pranked, which proves to me that pranks are really just some screwed up and cowardly way to be hostile to others while laying all the responsibility on the victim. Because if you get pranked and don't find it funny, then you are the asshole. What's wrong? Don't have a sense of humor? Is the defense that these absolutely worthless cunts pull out like badges from the twat police after assaulting you. Tell a prankster that you do not like pranks, and they'll accept it as a challenge that was never given. And so they will proceed to prank you. There's a word for that kind of person who will insist himself on you, despite your request that he doesn't, and pranks are just another way to insist. I swear to God, if I become king dictator of the world, I'm having all pranksters executed. Put them on their knees, give them two to the back of the head, and build the bullets to their families. China style. The bodies of the executed will be cremated, and the ashes will be sent to their loved ones. And when they open the urn to scatter the ashes, a wacky spring-loaded snake will jump out at them. What's wrong? Don't have a sense of humor? Paramount Pictures cordially invites you for a weekend getaway. At the party to end all parties. This is the craziest party that could ever be. <laughs> Turn on lights, cause I don't want to see. April Fool. Welcome to my home. And lifestyles of the rich and undeserving. Wrong. Join eight privileged guests who are just dying. <laughs> to have fun. The bridal suite? You like it? The ladies. I find a use for it. The gentlemen. <laughs> we, we, we did, on the first date. The young. Well, basically, I possess a, an essential lack of seriousness. And the restless. You are such a jerk. Everyone is having such a good time. It's scary. Something wrong? You were dead! Radio is blasting, someone's knocking at the door. I'm looking at my girl. Ah! She passed her door. Nikki! I'll see ah! someone in the hole. I have never seen it before. Don't know what it is. I don't want to see it. Ah! April Fool's Day. Get ready to party till you drop. Back at the Fire Lodge, we were told that instead of the wheel, they would just name films and the two that got the most applause from the audience would play next. The winners were The Return of the Living Dead from 1985 and Night of the Demons from 1988, which I had already seen at a previous Camp Frida and thought was okay, so instead I stayed put for the zombie flick, which I've seen on the big screen a couple times already, and I wouldn't mind watching again. The 4th of July is mentioned at the very beginning, but never mind that. We're not here for fireworks, we're here for a zombie mayhem, and that's what we get during this film, which mostly takes place on the 3rd. Still, I'm surprised that throughout this entire movie, not one early firework is seen or heard in the background. I mean, I don't know about the film setting of Louisville, Kentucky, but over here in Southern California, you can't stop someone from lighting fireworks before the 4th. They usually start as early as April. 
They don't stop until late September, if we're lucky. I don't even think you have to be from SoCal to recognize that this supposedly southern United States location is obviously Los Angeles. So we should be catching glimpses of the occasional errant fireworks set off by some overzealous cholo, because it's always a cholo flaunting the off-season fireworks. I don't know why. Maybe it's a requirement of the lifestyle. Anyway, everyone knows that George A. Romero's 1968 classic Night of the Living Dead is a work of fiction. What this film presupposes is, maybe it's not. That's what Frank, a senior employee at a medical supply warehouse, tells the new hire, Freddy, that the film was based on a real incident and that the zombies were sealed into airtight containers by the army and that one of those very same containers is stored in the warehouse's basement. Of course, curiosity gets the better of the two and off they go to check out the formerly living corpse, which results in them getting sprayed with zombie gas while bringing back the dead for good measure. The two call in their boss, Bert, to help them deal with the walking corpses that just won't stay dead. Even worse, these things all have a hankering for human brains. Meanwhile, Freddy's friends are killing time at the neighboring cemetery, waiting for him to clock out from work. They're unaware of what's going on. So in one of them, a pink-haired chick named Trash openly admits to fantasizing about being eaten alive. She has no idea how soon that fantasy is going to become terrifying reality. The rest of the film is just one long chain of fuck-ups, ranging from colossal to monumental to apocalyptic. Written and directed by Dan O'Bannon, who up until this point was known for writing Alien, Blue Thunder, and my favorite Toby Hooper film, Life Force, his directorial debut is a top-notch entry in what I like to call the everybody's fucked subgenre. Because no matter what these characters try to do to contain the situation, they're all fucked. It's a nihilistic work, but it's also good times, because O'Bannon is able to balance out the doom with an overall sense of fun, and it never stops being tense and exciting. He knows the right tone for any given scene, when to make things funny, when to make them scary, when to make them disturbing, and when to make them tragic. O'Bannon is strongly supported by a pitch-perfect cast, including the late great trio of Clue Gulliger as Bert, James Karen as Frank, and Don Kalfa as Ernie, the undertaker from the mortuary next door, and who also might be a secret Nazi, but I already talked about those assholes two movies ago. Then on the punker side, I'm going to point out Tom Matthews as Freddy, Beverly Randolph as Freddy's girlfriend Tina, and Linnea Quigley as the aforementioned Trash, who despite her limited screen time, arguably leaves the biggest impression on a viewer. At least she did on me. There's also Spider, played by Miguel A. Nunez Jr., whose previous film was Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, where he played a victim taking a shit in an outhouse. But unlike those filthy Scandinavians in dead snow, he and his paramour don't fuck on the toilet. Instead, they sing to each other while she waits for him outside the shitter, like a normal human being. Overall, I really enjoy this movie, despite half of the soundtrack being comprised of non-stop screaming. Doesn't matter if it's comedic screaming or screams of genuine terror. Screaming's screaming, man. And it can get grating. Most of it comes from Frank and Freddy, who scream at how badly they fuck things up, at the sights of the melty, reanimated bodies clamoring for and from the agonizing pain that they suffer from as they slowly die from exposure to the gas, becoming zombies themselves. But the other half of the soundtrack is a mix of cheesy 80s synth score and a bunch of boss tunes by bands like 45 Grave, TSOL, and The Damned. Sounds that never get old. Unless you're young, then that stuff is old by default. But they're bad jams nonetheless. While I prefer Romero's original Dead trilogy over this movie, as far as zombies go, I have to give it to O'Bannon. Because I find his version of the undead to be horrifying. It has nothing to do with Romero's zombies being slow and O'Bannon's being fast because they're both equally scary for their own reasons. No, it's because Romero's zombies can be killed. One shot to the brain will do them dead. But it doesn't work that way with O'Bannon's zombies. You can brain them, decapitate them, dismember them, and they're still moving. 
To add pain to injury, it hurts to be a zombie in O'Bannon's world. They need to consume human brains to take away from the pain. They're like junkies desperately fiending for a fix. So you gotta look at it like this. If you die and become a zombie in Romero's world, well, your non-life involves slowly walking the earth, occasionally chowing down on a human, and stopping at the neighborhood mall every once in a while. Doesn't seem like a bad existence. I mean, I don't hear them complaining. And once someone separates your brain from your spinal cord, it's lights out. And any possible suffering you might have had as a zombie is finally over. But become a zombie in O'Bannon's world, and you're fucked forever. You're in everlasting pain, save for those brief moments of relief that come from cracking open a skull and diving in for some delicious brain. But that won't last. And there you are, running in search for more relief. And if someone shoots you in the head, it does nothing. Hell, it might actually hurt you more now. And if someone machetes your head off your body, you're now burdened with yourself, having to carry your head around with you, provided you could find it. And if you get chopped up in the pieces, there will never be relief. Now, should you decide to suicide? Well, that's one way to solve your problem in Romero's world, but suicide is not an option in O'Bannon's world. Not unless you want to throw yourself into an incinerator. But if you happen to be infected with zombie cooties when you burn, well, congratulations. You've just infected the air with your self-made zombie gas, further spreading the pain, you inconsiderate asshole. Anyway, I really dig it. It's gory, funny, scary. The ending's a bit odd. It feels like they ran out of money and scrounged something up in editing, but that's a very minor complaint towards a major accomplishment. I also forgot that the movie begins with a disclaimer informing the viewer that what they're about to see is all true, using real names and real places. So take that, Fargo. In the dark of the night, Something strange is going on. You see that movie? Night of the Living Dead. Sure. They ship those bodies. Well, say hello. The dead have risen from the grave. How many did you say? A hundred. And now the question is, how do we get them back into the ground? Frank, we have a little problem. Ah, Boiler! Ten right! Ah, ah, puzzle because technically you're not alive why do you eat people not people brains how do you kill something that's already dead well how do i know fred i don't know let me think it's not a bad question bert in that movie they destroyed the brain to kill him is that what they did the brains right brains Military is nervous. Usual crap. The police are confused. Ah! 
Send more cops. It worked in the movie! Well, it ain't working now, Bert. In the movie line? It's not a bad question, Bert. It's not a bad question, Bert. It's not a bad question, Bert. The Return of the Living Dead. Everybody was happy to find donuts waiting in the lobby during the break, while I was happy that they were free. I grabbed the glazed twist and stepped outside to enjoy my sugar rush with some fresh air. Then we all gathered at the fire lodge for a final spiel from Trevor Dillon about the history of Camp Frida, and then the various volunteers were shouted out for their hard work for putting this night together and working this night together, and uh, we gave them all a round of applause. Then Becca and Issa came out to reveal the final film of the night, 1988's Maniac Cop, which features a climax that takes place during St. Patrick's Day. Somebody is killing innocent people on the streets of New York City. Somebody with a badge. And perhaps if you've never heard of the Maniac Cop series, you might have actually been surprised when it was revealed not to be Bruce Campbell's brief red herring of a character, but instead a bigger man with a bigger chin, played by Robert Zadar. And perhaps if you've never heard of the Maniac Cop series until now, well, my apologies for spoiling it. But that's part of life. The way I see it, everybody takes a beating sometimes, and everybody gets at least one movie spoiled for them. Back in 2019, I was walking towards the Vista Theater to watch Avengers Endgame, and two kids from the previous showing, walking the opposite direction, were loudly recounting who died in the end. I wanted to push the little bastards into oncoming traffic, but nobody was driving at the moment. Anyway, back to the movie, in which I can only guess writer-producer Larry Cohen wanted Whitey to understand the fear that blacks and minorities feel in the presence of our local officer friendlies, and make a profit while he's at it. And so here's another example of why I feel genre films were the best, and remain the best, at social commentary, compared to, say, your usual Oscar-bait claptrap that prefers to ladle it all over until every crevice is coated in message. For the especially thick-headed types in the audience, there's a man-on-the-street interview where a black guy mentions three of his friends having been shot by cops. And you know he's not talking about our maniac. That's just common behavior by the pigs in blue who know a paid vacation is worth the risk of being that one in a million who gets made to be an example. Hell, that's better odds than your average criminals get when they commit murder. William Lustig was the perfect guy to tell Cohen's story. His B-movie action horror chops are on full display here. When I first saw this on cable, my fourth grade mind was blown away when the identity of the maniac cop was revealed and our leads found out just how much of a scary indestructible force they were up against. Speaking of which, I love how the movie switches protagonists on us with only a half hour left to go. I really wish more movies would continue to surprise us this way. I forgot Tom Atkins was in this too. He plays the lieutenant investigating these murders. He's the one who introduces the idea that the killer is a police officer. So the fact that we have a policeman who wants to hold another policeman accountable for violent acts against helpless, unarmed, law-abiding citizens means that if you have trouble finding this movie in either the horror or the action category of your preferred streaming service, well, you'll probably locate this under fantasy. Or perhaps you'll find this under documentary, if one were to go by the shit-heel captain played by William Smith and the shitbird commissioner played by Richard Roundtree, the latter having broken my heart. I mean, look at you, Shaft. Your ass used to be beautiful. You used to be the man who would risk his neck for his brother man. And now here you are standing up on behalf of the man. Oh, man. Going back to Atkins, he's been in plenty of films over the years, but I kind of wish he would have a Robert Forster-esque resurgence where you'd see him pop up in bigger movies more often. Maybe if we can take Tarantino's attention away from some wannabe starlet's feet for two seconds, we can tell him to hook Atkins up with a role in his next project. Also, I don't know if this is a hot take or whatever the kids call it these days, but I'm not a fan of 80s-era Bruce Campbell. 
No, 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 no. I don't mean as an actor. I mean his look. I think he started looking more manly in the 90s when he started gaining some age on his face and some meat on his bones. Or maybe I'm projecting. As the years creep up, the donuts take their toll, my hair loses volume, and I begin waking up sore for no reason. And I'm no Bruce Campbell to begin with. Either way, I like my Bruce the way I like my beef. Aged and thick. My only real issue with the film is more of a budgetary one in that I can tell the scenes that were shot in Los Angeles from the ones that were shot in New York. I recognize quite a few downtown L.A. locations here and there, plus a palm tree or two where there should be zero. But hey, at least they could afford to film in both cities. If you were to make this film today, I bet you would have the leads mixing it up with actors who have Eastern European faces and who speak East Coast slang with vaguely Borat-esque accents. You know, and they're driving on cobblestone streets around 19th century architecture lined with creepy dry branch trees with everything looking blue and severe. Oh yeah, welcome to New York, everybody. Props to Sam Raimi, by the way, for appearing in a cameo as a news reporter and for saying St. Patrick's Day a bunch of times during his brief scene, causing us in the audience to break out into cheers and applause every few seconds. It was pretty funny. In my sleep-deprived state of mind, I imagined that Raimi was performing his scene live, and he knew that saying the name of the holiday would induce this Pavlovian response from the crowd, and so he toyed with us the way he toys with his actors, particularly his favorite punching bag, Campbell. Anyway, I don't have as much to say about this one as I would if we were talking about the sequel, which I remember being even better. But this first film will always be remembered as the one where Larry Cohen and William Lustig displayed their courage by speaking up to declare that all zombies are bastards. There's someone out there. No one knows his name. No one knows his face. Oh, no. But now, the most terrifying man in the city carries a badge. Edward, unstable and there's a deceleration injury. As in your old hanging. You really think a cop did this? Why not? Would you automatically assume that it was a police officer instead of some lunatic dressed up like a cop? Vice squad. Go kill again. He enjoys killing. He strikes without cause, without mercy. He may be getting information from inside the department. That means he is one of us. You see a cop, you crossed to the other side of the street. You're not gonna get me. Anybody who wants to shoot a cop nowadays has got one hell of an excuse. This one is my personal life, any of your business. Since your wife was found dead in the motel room. You gotta be wrong. You want to see the pretty picture? Ah! Keep your hands where I can see them. Hold on, I, I didn't do any of this. When a cop turns killer, you have the right to remain silent forever. No! Maniac Cop. After the film, the hosts came out to wrap up, and we all gave each other a round of applause before going on stage to take a photo together. I took part in posing with everybody else while making sure to stand in a place that would keep me hidden. The best of both worlds for someone like me. And so, a little before 8 a.m., Camp Frida 6 Holiday Horrors ended with those of us who made it through the night stumbling out bleary-eyed onto the wet streets. 
I ended up going over to Fullerton to grab some thematically related breakfast at Zombie Donuts, where all their delicious pastries were decorated like coffins, eyeballs, snakes, spiders, monsters, and of course, zombies. They weren't making them look legitimately scary, they were made up to look cute and cartoonish, and that's probably why there were plenty of little kids there. They tasted just as lovely as they looked. The donuts were pretty good, too. This has been the Exiles from Contentment podcast, recorded live in front of an empty room. Exiles from Contentment has been brought to you by anger, paranoia, resentment, depression, low self-esteem, and rally cigarettes, now with less nicotine and less throat irritants. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, if your cigarette tastes different, smoke rally. Episodes of this podcast can be downloaded at efcontentment.podbean.com. That's E as in E-Gads. This asshole's podcast is terrible. F as in fuck this asshole's terrible podcast. Contentment as in something this asshole hasn't felt in a very long time. Dot pod as in podcast as in everybody's got their own goddamn podcast nowadays. And bean as in what the Mexican-American host of this podcast probably eats every day. Am I right, real Americans? The Exiled from Contentment podcast can also be downloaded at exiledfromcontentment.blogspot.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as EF Contentment, all one word. Follow or friend us so we can then immediately have your tweets and posts muted in order for us to have a higher friend and follower count while pretending that we care about you. You can also email us at exiledfromcontentment at gmail.com. Until our next ramblings, this is Princess Sparkle for the Exiled from Contentment podcast saying take care and be well.